Darkness to Light, hosted by Alan and M. Middleton. We aim to explore what takes place at the corner of theology and geekology. Episode 26, The Nightmare is Over. Welcome to episode 26 of Darkness to Light. This is our show where we take a look at pop culture in terms of where those stories intersect with concepts in religion, faith, theology, spirituality. And this episode is the official capstone for our series Darkness to Nightmare. This has been a long, very meaningful, exciting experiment in Mm -hmm, podcasting, mm -hmm. and we will now take some time to reflect on the last month and a half of our lives. If I were to call this a labor of love, fully emphasizing both of those words, are we on the right track? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) So about half of this will be us replying to your thoughts, and the other half will be us just like... (laughs) berating ourselves for how many obvious things how could we have forgotten how could we have forgotten everything on this list but that was one of the great advantages of specifically calling these minisodes even though some people didn't agree with that but when we called them mini that sort of got us off the hook then we could just be like really impressive to people like wow they talked about a lot in 22 minutes as opposed to How could you possibly have missed? Or, wow, that was really well There was researched. no promise of being comprehensive. Was, yes. You could not have expected that. There was no assumption of, of comprehensiveness, and we were freed up to not feel like we had to do days and days and days of research before each episode. Exactly. And we're just going to go through the feedback by episode. And we start off with episode 19, Golems and Frankensteins, and right off the bat, Clinton, from Coffee and Comics, had a quibble with our description of these episodes. A mini-sode that is 30 minutes long, compared to the two or three hours of coverage some topics get, I suppose, technically, the term is correctly applied. And if there's anything that we get off on, it's technicalities. (laughs) On Facebook, I also pointed out that it is... All about podcast relativity, because a short episode of Batgirl's Oracle can regularly go 76 to 90 minutes. Just as a point of information, our good friend, the lovely Stella, recently did an episode of Batgirl to Oracle that was three and a quarter hours long talking about the new Spider-Man video game. So, it's all a question of perspective. <laughs> Ruth and Darren Sutherland of the Rad Adventures Network said they loved the concept of this miniseries. And Paul Hicks of the DC OCD podcast said that he was so excited for us to be covering Golems because he loves Lord of the Rings. (sighs) Paul! Nathaniel Wayne of the Council of Geeks wrote in with an email titled... You golem, girl! Amazing. Now, spoilers. Get used to Nathaniel writing in, and get used to his attempts 
at punfilled humor with his email titles. <laughs> Lovely Middletons. This little mini-sode project excites me because more darkness to light. I think something like this lends itself to smaller, focused tastings of each monster. This takes me back as my senior English project in high school was on the use of superstition to control behaviors with a focus on the legends of vampires, witches, and werewolves. I got an A on that paper, incidentally. Well, la dee da <laughs> At some point, Nathaniel and I need to sit down and talk about social deviance because uh, I got an A on that paper. <laughs> so there. Golems are quite an interesting thing, and I have to kind of divorce them from the less divinely linked homunculus concept, though there are obvious overlaps when it comes to modern reinterpretations. I hadn't really thought too much about how our current era of at what point is an AI actually sentient fiction connects to those questions of a soul from Frankenstein and its ilk. But yes, this is a question we're always going to come back to, what makes a man? Now, Nathaniel did say he struggled with using the word man in that statement, but nothing else sounded as good. That's the worst part. sometimes you have to settle. It's just pithy. (laughs) But what that really asks is what makes a human special, or maybe even are we special? It certainly helps for us to think that we are, because otherwise we might have stopped and thought about all we've destroyed in our ascent to global dominance as a species. I will... Interrupt here, put a pause on this, to mention a comment that I heard someone make recently, and that is that the most important statement in human history is, and God created man in his image, because that at least gave us a goal to aspire to, something to live up to as humans. We've done it poorly. We failed. I was going to say. but But that glimmer of what humanity means was was the point of that. And it is unfortunate how badly that phrase has been used to yes. say, well, if God created man in his image, everything else is uh, garbage and mm-hmm. exploitable. Right. You and I are both, as we talked about in the audio feed episode, pretty strong, biblically founded environmentalists. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I always get a little uh, antsy yeah. when, when people that, like to talk that about phrase. A, Yeah, people like to use that phrase and talk about human superiority and uh, gets my hackles up. Nathaniel does point out that there are so many things that we've done that other species on this planet have not. But lest we forget, humanity's specialness was also a big part of the rationalization of colonialism. Yeah. Without that, he says, we'd just be a rampantly out-of-control bipedal infection that won't stop spreading across the surface of the planet. Not that different to cancer. Wow, that got cynical, even by my standards. So, uh, great episode? (laughs) Geekly yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Professional buzzkill. (laughs) And I hope one of the things we've demonstrated over the course of this miniseries is that great monsters and great stories ask great questions. So, A-plus on this feedback. <laughs> Dave McIlvaney responded by simply saying, Golly, this was great. And Martin Gray from Far Afield, Scotland, asked if we'd ever seen the 1915 German silent film, The Golem. 
I finally saw it the other year with live accompaniment at Edinburgh's oh, wow. magnificent Usher Hall as a Halloween screening. Now, that is the way to view basically anything, is with live <laughs> organ and orchestration. People dressed up, and a great time was had by all. The film itself is slow, but has a weird atmosphere that sucked us in. I also see that there's a 2018 Golem film that may even be out over there. Posted some screenshots from the silent film, and a few of the pics were rather Frankensteinian. That's what I certainly thought. Martin also said, comic-wise, it seems that you may be unaware of Justin Gray, Jimmy Palmiotti, and Phil Winslade's monolith. Published originally by DC Comics in 2004, it's great stuff, but don't research it too much. Just be nice to the mailman until Friday comes. <laughs> and on Friday of that week, we received from the kind and generous Martin a hardcover collection of the first three issues of that title. And he wasn't the only one who mentioned Monolith. Neil Stanifer had written in before the episode, Please tell me you discussed the Monolith comic. Wait, don't. I want to be surprised. Well, I think disappointed may have been Neil's response, actually, on that account. But we can make up for it now, because I did read those issues. Of course, thank you, Martin. It was very kind and generous of you. I did read the book. I have not had time, unfortunately. Mm -hmm, But it's good. It keeps the Jewish nature of the creation of the monster. It keeps the protector aspect. And added a nice bit about how much protection is too much protection. Hmm. Almost moving a little bit into that genie literalism, be careful what you ask for sort of thing. I dig it. Can the golem understand nuances between justice and revenge? Or maybe recognize what's a minor threat versus a major threat? The way I was thinking of it was... Couldn't really tell between a misdemeanor and a felony. Right, sort of like a scale of response. Yeah. Any violation was dealt with in the same golem-like Frankensteinian response, which was an interesting approach. Interesting. So it was a very good first couple of issues to the story. I think it ran 12 issues. Definitely off to a good start. Again, that was Monolith from DC Comics. Fingers crossed. Maybe it'll... uh pop up on Hoopla or DC mm-hmm. Unlimited or oh, something like that yes, and we'll be yes. able to read the rest. Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Tam. asked <laughs> Is there anyone else who keeps expecting a sinister, maniacal laugh when either M or Alan says the title of these minisodes? It just seems that one is needed there, which is okay because I put my own in when I was listening. Well, we certainly hope Robert appreciates that, based on this suggestion, we started putting them in, in all of the episodes as well. Award-winning Supergirl blogger Dr. Ange pointed out that a golem played a role in Michael Chabon's Cavalier and Clay novels, and that before Alan Moore took over the title in Saga of the Swamp Thing number 11, Swamp Thing actually fought the golem. We were able to find an image of this. (laughs) Fortunately, literally... At the last minute, and I was able to get it onto the Tumblr before Ah. we switched over for the next day in order to talk about our next creature. In that first episode, we also gave the Redeemed Otaku podcast a shout-out when we talked about the prevalence of golems in anime. Becky commented that she and her husband Tim, we were just talking about golems and alchemy. 
in light of Evangelion. I really enjoyed this episode. Oh, man. <sighs> One of these days. I just need to find four or five days that I can be like, I'm going to take a couple of days off of work so I can watch Eva and then I can process Eva for like 72 hours before I have to interact with another person because it's going to get wet and wild. We did agree that over in Becky's part of the world, anime, golems are all over it. And we're not done talking about anime in this feedback episode. Now, before we move on, I had a follow-up, and you had a little bit of a follow-up, too, on the Golem episode. Because I re-watched the X-Files episode, Kaddish. It happened to be on just a couple days after that episode came out. And you were right. It's not that good. Yeah! <laughs> the story is okay, although a little obvious. And I do think it's a little overacted. Yeah. This episode also had... One of your biggest oversights. Oh my gosh, this is this is. You've nigh, been beating yourself up for over a month. Literally nigh criminal because one of my favorite books by Mike Mignola mm-hmm. is Joe Golem and the Drowned City, which we've mentioned before somewhere on some podcast. How did I miss but this? Certainly not in that episode. Joe Golem is a super cool concept. It does take the idea of a golem, but again, it's very Frankensteinian in mm-hmm. that it's a reanimated corpse. There's the uh, Joe Golem uh, illustrated novel, which is The Drowning mm-hmm. City, and then there is now an ongoing Joe Golem comic. And I have to admit, spoilers, I'm not actually sure if they're the same Joe Golem. It seems like there might be a little inconsistency in the timeline, so uh, I'm I'm, going to have to look into that a little bit more closely. I'm pretty sure it does come from the Mignola Hellboy studio. Yes. But I don't think it's retelling that story and where exactly it fits into Joe Golem, occult detective. Canon. Canon, I'm not quite sure. But But I did just hear, as of this recording, that issue three of... A current Joe Golem comic is out. Yes, and the great thing about Joe Golem is that it's all miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very noir in its in its stylings. As the occult detective, it's set in an mm-hmm. alternate version of 1940s New York, where global warming and global catastrophes have happened, and a bu- there's been a bunch of floods and tidal like events and typhoons and stuff, and so. New York is now the drowned city, and everyone lives in these sort of like half-submerged, run-down slums just all over the former coast. So, uh, really interesting concept, and each one of the miniseries has its own mystery and its own creature. The one that I posted on the Tumblr in order to make up for missing it (laughs) in the actual episodes is the Rat Catcher, Mm -hmm. which has a creature from the Black Lagoon type antagonist. There was Drowned City, and then there is a new series now, which yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't catch remember. the subtitle. Yeah, of, I don't of remember what the, what new the main one series, is, yeah. the newest one is, but I believe that there are now a total of four mini series if you include the illustrated novel, and they are all great. Gotcha. Most of them only four or five issues. Before we wrap up on Golems, I also wanted to give a shout out to a book that had literally been sitting on my bedside <laughs> table for two months <laughs> before I returned it the day before we recorded the episode which is the anthology Hebrew Punk, edited by Lavi Tidar. It is predominantly, again, like Joe Golem's sort of modern noir short stories, 
but it takes a reinvention or inspiration from classic movie monsters and a lot of Jewish legends and folk tales. And I'm going to be honest, I did not finish this uh, anthology because I didn't get it. So if we mm. have any uh, Jewish listeners or people who are really interested in Kabbalah and Jewish traditions and might know more about it, it was... The context so, yeah. was too different for you to... Well, one thing, for example, is a frequent character in several of the short stories in that anthology is a character known only as the rat. Mm. And judging from the uh, introduction, the, the sort of author's note, at the beginning, the rat is an important recurring character or, or motif idea or, or motif. something. Okay. I don't know what it symbolizes. Right. I gotcha. And so I the gotcha. stories were all good, but I definitely felt like I was missing out on something right. because this is very, very much made for a Jewish audience. Right. So big ups for being a really cool, well-written anthology. And I hope that other people who will get it more than me enjoy it. That was Hebrew Punk edited by Lavi Tidhar. Yes. If you want to listen to that with a background of Shlometasig, I believe is how his name is pronounced, highly recommended. Episode 20, or Minisode number two, was about genies. And after I made the preview post, Hugo Rivera commented that if this one was going to be as in-depth as the Golem episode, he was in for a treat. Dave McIlvaney wished... For us to do a bunch more episodes. And that wish came true. <laughs> he also managed to tie those first two episodes together. You and your listeners might also be interested in the 2013 novel by Helene Wecker, The Golem and the Genie. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, when we were putting the episode order together, we knew that. I mean, we also could have done Golem of Paris, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the Gin Catcher. Like, there's been a yeah. lot of big, notable... Mashups of those two? I don't know. It's something like 2013 to 2016 New York Times bestsellers. They mm. really, really love Gin and, and Golems. Nice. And again, from Martin Gray, I didn't know half of the history behind the Gin. I did, though. Miss you relating everything back to comics, as in the previous episode. No Yellow Perry? No Johnny Thunder? No Mr. Genie? Now, to be fair, Martin, Darkness to Light is about more than just comics. That being said, Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt? Okay, that was a pretty big oversight. <laughs> he has a magic word, which he often says by accident, at least in the Golden Age version of the story. And it gave him a very overpowered, wish-granting being to do his bidding. So that was pretty much a genie. Yeah. <laughs> it was Dave McIlvaney who made a suggestion that we ended up adopting into the fairy episode, which I mentioned there. He said, I think Mr. Mixius Pitalik could also be at least related to the djinn in his role as a trickster with magical powers. Dave also said he loved the Earth, Wind, and Fire music, which made Mrs. Middleton very happy. <laughs> she contributes relatively few bits to either of our shows, but the ones she does contribute, good. they're all pretty awesome. We get really good feedback on them. Again, from Nathaniel Wayne, an email entitled, I Dream of Ginny. 
<sighs> well met, Middletons. As a once-in-future D&D gamer, I did know that those beings were not always so benevolent as mm. pop culture would like to make us believe. Be careful what you wish for is a lesson that mankind has been trying to teach itself seemingly for as long as we've been able to tell stories with morals. Mm. It is interesting to have an entire race of beings custom-built to hammer <laughs> home that tireless lesson. Also, the whole idea of their being inherently chaotic as they were formed from fire is an interesting concept. What I found most intriguing, though, was the tidbit that M threw out early on about the jinn not being soulless beings, a direct equivalent to demons or angels. Very prescient. Mm. But rather, beings possessing the same qualities generally viewed as being unique to humans in most faiths. The timing alone was kind of fascinating, Given the tangent I went on about the supposed uniqueness about humans exactly. in my last piece, of course, even in this faith, humans are still set apart and presumably above the jinn with the specifics of their creation myth being more balanced, but it is an intriguing idea nonetheless. It makes one wonder if those with this element as a background of their beliefs might have an inherent advantage when it comes to, say, reconciling one's face with the existence of non-human sentient life be it extraterrestrial, true AI, or something we have not yet conceived of. I look forward to what comes next. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Another interesting bit, and it's obviously a topic for another episode, but I have no problem, at least theoretically, with the idea of aliens and other life. I don't know that that would affect my particular brand of faith. And, you know, that's for someone who takes a serious and high, although not literal, view of scripture. But that's a fascinating topic. And then either when you throw in the AI version or the singularity, consciousness transfer, all of that stuff is sociologically and theologically intriguing. I really need to look more into Islam. I took one class in my religion minor right. that was specifically about Middle Eastern religion. And it was great. I've got to dive back into it more. Mm -hmm. Like, there is so much really cool theology mm -hmm. that I think gets lost, especially in a Western view right. of Islam. And I think to answer that sort of theoretical that Nathaniel brought up, I think it's a real question of non-fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. Because you and I do not consider ourselves fundamentalist Christians, and we don't have any problem existing with that weirdness, I think any time a person of whatever faith has mm -hmm. a very strict, strict or, yeah. or narrow view of the world rooted in their religion, I think that's when you get people getting really uncomfortable with these weird questions, whereas right. you and I and probably a, a decent number of, of Muslim people are pretty down with it because mm -hmm. yeah weird stuff happens sometimes <laughs> gotta make peace with that nathaniel also commented that the monkey's paw is also a type of seafaring knot huh. sometimes called a monkey's fist so it's a heavy knot used to weigh down a line making it easier to both accurately toss and catch huh. and weirdly it came up as a metaphor in a sales training i had years ago Nathaniel lives up in the New England area, and so possible seafaring nautical concepts, metaphors. nautical things are more common than here in the middle of uh, 
Flatland. Landlockistan. But he said, the instructor told us that sometimes we have to throw out a monkey's paw (laughs) to clients. (laughs) Meaning toss out the stuff they want in order for them to take the line and pull in the sales relationship. Of course, he used the term monkey's paw before explaining what it was. So my brain was scrambling with, you want us to fulfill customers' wishes in a way that works against them? (laughs) What do you work in? Insurance? (laughs) Hello! <laughs> so there you go. Simpsons acquired pop culture outweighs seafaring wisdom, at least in my head. Are you under the age of 60? <laughs> this is probably true for everyone. Ruth Sutherland said that she really enjoyed this episode. It was interesting, and I appreciated learning stuff about the historical and cultural connections and a variety of takes on, and ways to spell or pronounce, gin. <laughs> Thanks for getting my day off to a good start. Oh, that's nice. Dr. Ange asked us a very insightful question. Why do some gins have blue eyes and other brown? Because there are dominant genies and recessive genies. Because not only is Ange an actual doctor, he's also an actual dad. So dad jokes come pretty natural to him. Especially if they have a little medical flair. Why are you still shaking your head? Terrible. (laughs) Now, Martin Gray could not help himself referring to the above joke with Dr. Ange is a genius. More like a degenerate. Next up, vampires. And at this point in the series, podcasting veteran Michael Bradley commented, I have maxi enjoyed these mini-sodes and this mini-series. And that was just for the preview post. <laughs> After listening to the episode, he proposed a title for his vampire novel, Doctor Doom vs. Dracula, Dawn of, oh forget it, Doom is the winner, deal with it, fanboys, by Professor Alan Quarterman. He hacked my hard drive? Again? <sighs> Michael! Which is so weird. I mean, he doesn't look Russian. Did you mail it to yourself and put it in a safety deposit box? Boom. And we heard from Lynn, I think for the first time. My favorite piece of vampire-related pop culture is Forever Night. It's a genre-bending comedy buddy cop TV show about a vampire homicide detective. Okay, Why did you start chuckling halfway through that description? There are a lot of words (laughs) in that series description. And they often do not... Share sentences? Not usually, but nice. Now, I thought about mentioning that one, so I'm very glad that Lynn did. And I'm pretty sure I've heard our friends Michael Bailey and or Tom Panarese say nice things about that show as well. From our buddy Isaac in Michigan, Professor and M, I am really enjoying this podcast miniseries. I, too, have a couple of monster stories in the books that never were category. I think one was a golem that had been brought to life. A lot of playing with not knowing who he is angle. Mm. You write these books that never were. Martin Luther Vampire Hunter. Missionary Vampire Hunter. And I will read them and send them to friends. Now, I do just want to take a moment and point out that you did have a title for your book. Which was, in true early 2000s style, Power in the Blood. 
Come on, that's not bad. Somewhere, somewhere along the route, I have the live journal writing board little banner. Oh yeah, that I you post made that. I gotta post for that. power in the. Bl- I have no. Okay, that one I have to post. I gotta find and post that one. If you don't have it, I have it on my old 2006 <laughs> MacBook, which I will literally turn on for the purpose of getting that image off, just so everyone can see it. I'm gonna be honest, cheesy, not bad. That came from the NaNoWriMo discussion boards, where after November, they keep the boards going for, at that point, into December. And someone said, I'm a graphic designer. Is anyone interested in a banner for their book? So I gave the title and, you know, one sentence. And maybe with this episode, you will see what they came up with. Also, Isaac says, Buffy is better than Angel. Love nope. me some Spike. Also, also, Christian Kane is the best. That, okay, true. I love his arc in Angel, but it also makes me sad. Oh, that's his thing, though. That's how he gets you. That is the power of Christian Kane. Have a nice day, and next bit is said in a creepy voice. Lock the windows and stay away from the doorway to Nightmare. <laughs> Why didn't we get Isaac to write our intros? <laughs> would have been good. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. From Ruth Sutherland, I've really enjoyed all these episodes. Darren and I are both fans of vampire stories, and we would love to read your novels sometime in the future. Some of Darren's favorites are Hammer Horror Films. I am especially fond of Count Duckula, a British animated comedy horror TV series about a vegetarian vampire duck. Again, a lot of words in that description. And we did not mention Banicula? Dang it! Okay. <laughs> Another oversight. I was a Scholastic Books kid. How did How I miss <laughs> Banicula? And from Dave McIlvaney, I'd read both the vampire novels you pitched. Okay, guys, you really need to stop giving us positive reinforcement. <laughs> I mean, we appreciate the support, but this can this can only end up... In embarrassment. And tears. Disappointment. White wine. Like, it's not going to end well for anyone, guys. I must say, Dave says, that I enjoyed the Christopher Farnsworth, Nathaniel Cade books more than Alan seems to have. And I particularly found Cade quite frightening, especially when he engages his tremendous strength and will in a conflict between his vow never to drink human blood and his oath of allegiance to the president and his officers. Now... I thought the novels were good enough, actually, but I didn't think you were ever going to get over the goofy concept, so I sort of let that pass during the episode. I may have been unfairly harsh, based (laughs) purely on the premise and the the titles. I'm very judgmental when it comes to my vampire (laughs) Mm -hmm, plots, mm -hmm. as you can tell from everyone's recommendations, which have all left me rolling my eyes. I'm sure they're good. I'm sure they're good, and I don't begrudge anyone their campy, delightful, occasionally menacing, supernatural horror kicks. And Dave also pushes back on something. I must say that I've never considered vampire stories to be anti-Catholic, since Catholic sacraments, like holy water and crucifixes, provide protection against the creatures. If I had to pick a vampiric power to have myself, I think I'd go with M's choice of shape-shifting. Because if a vampire hunter doesn't recognize me as a vampire, they might not be a danger to me. Fair points. 
the the Catholicism uh, of vampires is is sort of where I get my mm-hmm. tongue in cheek. Yes, vampire kicks. You were conflating anti-Italian yes. <laughs> with anti-Catholic. Exactly. And there's obviously an overlap there, but they are distinct. Yes, and it, it that was that was a joke because, as Dave points out, it is the power of the church yes. that stands against mm-hmm. and defeats vampires. Yes. <laughs> At least you know the the classic traditional ones do take for granted, as Dave said, that Catholic belief is true, or or at least that it's effective. Mm-hmm. Very true. And from Nathaniel Wayne, strap in, listeners. This is a long one. Dear morbid Middletons, oh the vampire, along with the werewolf, one of those things that you can find strands of an old folklore. But basically, all the staples of the lore are fairly recent. I suppose one of the reasons vampires don't go out of style is that the basic rules are so universally known. It means that there's a ton of foundational work that writers already have done for them. In any story, you just have to establish the few differences between yours and the standard template, then you're off to the races. It removes a ton of the expository requirements that would exist with a lesser-known or original creature. Though the flip side is that they're so easy to use, they may have in fact been overused for stretches of time, although they've taken a backseat to zombies recently. For my part, I like many of the modern variants, Buffy with its, it's just a human shell and a demon host, or the Lost Boys with, you're not a full vampire until your first kill, or Blade with its vampirism is a disease, complete with mutated strains. It's fun to see what bits get kept and what new things get added in. I think my own favorite modern vampire story is Blood-Sucking Fiends, a love story, by Christopher Moore. Side note, I'm not sure if this is an author either of you are familiar with, but I would love to hear your opinions on his book, Lamb, the Gospel According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal. Christopher Moore is an oddball. I always see his books and think to myself, I wonder if I should get into this, but mm-hmm. they fall into the same category with Tim Dorsey, mm. which is, that is a really interesting thing that I am 1% interested in. <laughs> I can see how it would be interesting for others. Yes. <laughs> Nathaniel says he's surprised that we didn't touch on some of the wonderfully bizarre variants from non-Western cultures. Okay. We were going to, and we hit minute 27 of the record. <laughs> because they're cool, cool vampires that are outside of the pop cultural mainstream. Mm-hmm. Nathaniel mentions Asian vampires in particular that can range from the comical to the grotesque. It's possibly a forgivable oversight since Thank it's you. genuinely agreed that these were Asian cultures doing their versions, their takes on the Western original concept, rather than something that sprang up organically. But still, there are a few others. The Japanese Nukekubi. Nice. Whose heads detach from their bodies at night to find victims and drain blood. The Philippines have the similar, though usually depicted more as monstrous, Mananangal, which separates its upper torso, grows wings, and preys on pregnant women. Nathaniel says his favorite is the Chinese Jiangxi. Okay, now this this was a complete oversight on my part. Because as soon as I saw Jiangxi, I was like, oh, of course! So many of the ideas are properly scary. 
but when put into practice, they also become kind of hilarious. So you have the basics, coughing during the day, preying on life force at night. But one of the major features is that being corpses, their joints are incredibly stiff. And so they hop with their arms outstretched in front of them and are usually depicted as being in super formal dress. So imagine a pale, well-dressed figure hopping towards you with their arms stretched out, and it's not hard to see why this version hasn't made the leap to depiction in other cultures. As a bonus, the best way to ward them off is to open a bag of rice, because they have to count every single grain before they can move past it, something that I think was borrowed in an X-Files episode at one point. Yes, vampires were portrayed as being very OCD, especially in terms of having to count and, and, and organize. So that was one of the few times that Mulder's habit of eating sunflower seeds really came in handy, because you could just dump the bag out. And, and, it, and it brought the vampire to a halt. And he was very frustrated. Oh, why'd you go and do that for? One, two. <laughs> While Mulder's running away. <laughs> and yes, okay. Every aspiring creative person has their own vampire concept, and I am no exception. It's not nearly as elaborate as The Professor's, and ultimately has only yielded a short story so far. But Nathaniel's basic pitch is to zero in on the nightlife, but do it in the most non-glamorous way possible. I don't mean like seedy, noir underbelly. I mean, how much it would suck to be a vampire in the modern era and I'm sure he meant that pun. There's so often an assumption that old vampires have opulent lifestyles and have amassed resources, as if living a long time also gives them clairvoyance on how to play the long-term investment market. But you remove that, and what do you have? Well, even if they don't want to be trendy, any vampire still needs some funds to be able to simply exist and pass among humans. So they need a job. But they can't do a day job, and let's be blunt, most night work is not glamorous. It would be compounded by the fact that any vampire who's been around more than, say, 20 years, either not going to have basic documents, social security number, or they're not going to appear as an age that lines up with it. This leaves night jobs at businesses that don't really care so much about paperwork. So, vampire club bouncers, vampire late-night janitors, and... As Nathaniel chose, vampire late-night convenience store clerks. Genius! Again, a string of words I've never seen run together in that particular order before. Now this, I want <laughs> to this read. This one I'd read. We recommended it in the actual episode, but if you have not read the Reformed Vampire mm. Support Group, Nathaniel, you definitely, definitely should. Um, it's set in Australia, and that's a major aspect of the book is how these people survive because in one case the main character nina appears to only be 15 mm -hmm. because she was blooded in the right. early 80s and so she's actually 56 or 57 and living with her elderly mother in the basement and there's a lot of stuff about how people make their money and one character is essentially our good friend chris honeywell <laughs> <laughs> who buys weird stuff out of storage containers at 3 o'clock in the morning and sells it on eBay. Yeah. Garage but, sale gloat after dark. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of stuff like that. Or working working overnight, 
24-7 helplines and doing mi- middle-of-the-night customer service from your cell phone and stuff like that and the, the way that people manage to exist. And most of them, it's by living in very gross, seedy mm-hmm. basement apartments with walk-in fridges. Nathaniel also talks about one of the other downsides of being locked into the age you were when you were turned. Unless you're already a supermodel, whatever you were at that point is what you're stuck with. Got a few extra pounds on the love handles? That's permanent now. Got a bum leg? Hope you like limping for eternity. That pimple on your cheek? It's never going away. Also, if you go too long without feeding, you're going to start visibly drying up and emaciating. So it's a take aimed at removing the glamour without going the feral creature route. Also, not my only take on vampires, but I feel my most interesting one. Loving this series, geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. P.S. He says, I do encourage M. read Dracula. If they do get around to reading it by feedback time, no. no. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's a, like 1,500 pages. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I did like his bit on the stopping of the aging process, because mm-hmm. it does make... For some creepy bits, like an interview with the vampire, the Kirsten Dunst character in the movie, and also the version in the book, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old, whatever, when turned, and uh, in, in, in that the character from Reformed Vampire Support Group, that does build in a bit of, of pathos into the mm-hmm. story. That was also one of the strengths in probably my biggest blunder. And this whole series, because you love this movie. Let the right one in. How did I forget? It is creepy and atmospheric with a devastating scene at the end. If you've seen it, I'll just say swimming pool and leave it at that, because you know what I'm talking about. But it's the kind of story I haven't seen told a lot, because the vampire needs a human helper. We've seen some of that. Mm Mm-hmm. But in this case, the story of the vampire is in the body of a preteen, probably a girl, though that's not 100% confirmed. But I'll go with that. So she's found a potential new helper because her old helper is on his deathbed. Because he's a human. and You have to rotate them out occasionally. Sometimes you need a new model. So the basic story of the movie is her selecting the right kind of boy, this bullied boy, and she gives him a little attention and protects him, and and he is basically under her thrall <laughs> at that point. So it's her, her testing and, and grooming of him for this job. It is creepy. Again, it is really good. I highly recommend the original Scandinavian version, although the English language uh, remake let me in. That's not all that bad either. It did the right thing of staying almost almost 100% just taking the script of the original, Mm -hmm. running it through Google Translate and filming it. (laughs) But again, it's one of those things because of the the age stopping just makes for really interesting places that you can go dramatically that that, that other monsters don't give you that opportunity. Yeah, it touches on some really real human horror. Mm Mm-hmm. Good, good stuff. Now, in the blog post to the episode, someone by the name of Unknown 
Is that their actual name? <laughs> that would be great. They uh, just agreed with your concept of Tom Cruise making a deal with someone to stay preternaturally young. Yes. <laughs> and from Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics podcast, not to argue with you and M. Uh-oh. Because arguing with M only leads to showing how ignorant I am. Oh. I love and respect your opinion, Clinton. I really do. He has a minor quibble. While I do agree that the traditional zombie owes much to Romero for its creation, the novel I Am Legend predates Romero's Living Dead by 14 years, and the movie adaptation The Last Man on Earth, yay Vincent Price, predates Living Dead by four years. While there are major differences from the zombies featured, I just felt the need to point out that these were something different than the previously known African slash voodoo zombie and the Romero zombie. So this is sort of the transition between those two. And uh, yes, absolutely correct. I totally forgot about I Am Legend as a zombie movie because one, I haven't seen it, really need to. And the various versions that it's been filmed at least three different times, and they're always a little questionable as to whether they're zombies, a little more vampiric in some, just monstrous in others. So Yeah, I always I always think of it as a vampire movie, mm. but that's very much the new version, the legend right. version, where it's specifically a vampire. So that is an excellent point, Clinton. Thank you for pointing it out. Christopher Willette said that he paired his reading of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter with historian Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Abraham Lincoln, Team of Rivals. The books were written in surprisingly similar styles, actually. Also, I want the History Channel to hire Ken Burns to adapt Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Again, I would watch that in a heartbeat. That sounds amazing. Christopher also commented that Dracula was one of his favorite books ever. And then Michael Carlyle, from the Crap Box of the Son of Cthulhu blog, confirmed my sense of the length of the two books. Dracula is a monster of a book. But um, Tish. Clocking in at a whopping 160,000 words, while Frankenstein is a mere 74K. I breezed through Frank and loved it. Dracula was an episodic, serialized slog that if it hadn't held so many, this is actually kind of softcore porn, but... We can't say these things directly because of Victorian sensibilities, so I might have fallen asleep reading it. And then the two of them, Christopher and Michael, got into a literary debate of Frankenstein versus Dracula. Chris stated that he would like Frankenstein if I could cut out the large sections of emo lamenting between the bursts of story. Look. (laughs) Yeah, that's not bad. Look, I listened to My Chemical Romance once upon a time in my life. But I was mostly over that period by the time I was in 11th grade English, and I have to agree with Chris. Is it a cool concept? Yes. Is it an interesting book? Yes. Is it well written? Empirically? Yes. I literally never want to read it again. Now Mike came back that the moral quandary is the heart of Frankenstein. Dracula is a less mental exercise and more of a cliffhangered movie serial. Both have their strengths but the length of Dracula induces fatigue. Michael did admit that Dracula does have it down, however, when it comes to atmosphere. So I think we bridged, we brokered a peace between the Frankenstein and Dracula lovers. I think that I would 
divvy this up thusly. If you're going to read one, go with Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. If you're going to listen to one, oh. get Dracula. Because I think if I don't have to physically read all 160,000 words. There's sections you might want to crank that up to 1.5 times. It's harder to do that when you're reading. Very true. Very true. <laughs> and I'm guessing there are some pretty epic narrated versions of vampire. I have no idea if Christopher Lee, Vincent Price, etc., 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 has ever recorded. That's but the there have thing. got to be some horror superstars who have recorded versions of Dracula. And I'm sure that there are some really good Dracula radio plays and audio sure, dramas. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I get the feeling that being a sort of serialized, syndicated story, the way that it is, mm-hmm. might be really good in audio when you can just... Put it mm-hmm. on and sit down at your computer and let the atmosphere right. wash over exactly. you. And I plan to do that in like a couple months when I have some free time. Gene Gene, the podcasting machine Hendrix, recommended the anime Interviews with Monster Girls. I'm pretty sure M would like this, but the professor might also enjoy it. The basic premise is that demi-humans, vampires, succubi, etc., are actual offshoots of humanity. One of the teachers at a high school is also fascinated by demis, their preferred term, and interviews three of the students and one of the teachers. Interesting. Garrett Godfrey, the host of the excellent podcast Good Patron, said that he was amazed about how Christian Bram Stoker's Dracula was. It was an amazing read. I'd never heard of the Reformed Vampire Support Group, but I will check it out. Bam. Garrett then posted a meme of Twilight with Blade approaching Bella and Edward. If, if only, only. If, if only. only. <laughs> oh, it's the 10th year anniversary of the oh, Twilight movies. Land. And wow, my Tumblr has just been unreadable. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. He then posted a link to a song by Blaster the Rocket Boy. That's a band also beloved by Christopher Willette. And the song? All the way to the blood bank. <laughs> From Bex, the redeemed otaku. Just finished your episode on vampires. And if you don't mind animated blood and gore, the anime Hellsing is an interesting watch, as is the old classic Vampire Hunter D. And because this Halloween they released season two, I recommend everyone with a Netflix account hit up Castlevania. And proving that M only skimmed the feedback document and You did, did not... not send it to me. <laughs> Ed Moore from Teal Productions replied to this one with his own thoughts on anime. Vampire Hunter D is great. The newer remake is the better of the two. I would also add Blood, the Last Vampire to the list. Also, don't miss the current second season of Castlevania. Okay, it's a total of eight episodes. I know season one is four. I believe season two is also four. You can watch the whole thing in three hours, and I highly recommend it. I hear good things. It's great. The first episode of season one of Castlevania has the best, truly tragic, vampiric Mm. love story that I have ever seen. It's it's incredible. I legit cried. Oh, wow. So uh, just just throwing that out there. Also, tons of religious overtones. Mm. A lot of Catholicism in there, and also some, like, mystical stuff going on. It's very good. Rounding out that discussion on anime, Becky replied back that she couldn't believe she forgot blood, saying also that it was excellent. This just proves there's just (laughs) too much stuff to recommend. 
We're always forgetting something. But fortunately, we could pull everybody and get a really... Hive mind. Thank you, hive mind. Thank you, hive mind. But we've been able to put together a pretty good recommendations list so far, which we'll round out with our last two or three that we also forgot. Speaking of one that I forgot from DC Comics. So here you go, Martin, talking about comics again. From DC, the I Vampire book. That was a favorite title of mine in the New 52, although the character has been around since, I think, the mid-70s or so. But it's a pretty tragic backstory. Andrew Bennett becomes a vampire and is talked into turning his girlfriend Mary so they can spend eternity together. What could go wrong with this? Well, she goes kind of crazy and decides that she wants to rule the world. Becoming Mary, Queen of Blood, and therefore Andrew Bennett's mortal enemy. And the story is basically him hunting her throughout history. That's great. Again. It's a great concept, and some of the actual comic books are pretty good, too. Vampire stories are best when you can work in the mechanics Mm -hmm. and the tragedy at the same time. Excellent concept. And after this episode released, Paul Hicks had a prediction for the following episode. Next up, Moths! But no. Episode 22, part four of the series was about ghosts, zombies, and other dead things. Not moths. Just to clarify. Robert Ludwig was excited that he finally got his sinister laugh worked into the episode. And Dave McIlvaney said, I like the ideas that ghosts and zombies are kind of opposites. Mm. Ghosts being spirits without bodies, and zombies, bodies without spirits. If nothing else, this reinforces incarnation theology, because both are incomplete beings. He wraps up his feedback with, I wonder when you'll get to witches. In these minisodes. I agree with him on the theological point about incarnation, that body and spirit definitely belong together. And as we said, that is orthodox Christian thought. Spoiler, of course, no witches. We wanted to keep our theme pretty strictly to monsters. And although witches are a staple of Halloween legend and lore, they did not meet our definitions. Though, a common witch folklore is actually the same that we mentioned earlier about vampires. That if you want to keep the witches away, you should scatter rice Mm. or flour or something equally small because they'll have to pick it up and count it. Interesting. And from Nathaniel Wayne, boo! Nah, don't worry. It's just me, your friendly neighborhood buzzkill. Timing works out well because... I just saw a piece which, as part of a film review, made the point that ghosts, as we've come to understand them in fiction, as we laid out, which was eerily similar to the categories that Nathaniel laid out in an old feedback, are a fairly recent thing. Okay, yeah, we we did definitely steal some of that, for sure. We would have given you credit, but we knew you'd write in and uh, remind us. We we forgot. But Nathaniel points out that the definitions of ghosts that we use now are way more rigid than originally considered. If you go back to the old literature or even folktales, things that would be lumped under haunting stories were often nebulously defined blends of demons, spirits, generalized forces, etc. 
the more narrowly defined ghost was something that popped up in things like, say, Hamlet, because there had to be a way to visualize and define this normally nebulous thing. So what we're saying is, for ghosts and fairies, Ooh. it all comes back to Shakespeare. As for the zombie, well, I'm going to leap off what you folks said about everybody has a vampire story. I'm not sure that everyone has a zombie story. I know I do, and maybe I'll even do something with it next year. But I'm pretty confident in saying that we all have a general plan for the zombie apocalypse. You know, Nathaniel didn't have to put me and my prepper tendencies on blast (laughs) that way, but uh, here we are, I guess. First thing. The super chasey zombies are not even part of this conversation. No, because then we're, we're everyone's dead. <laughs> we're, of, we're all dead, yes. End game. <laughs> My own first instinct would be to get to the top floor of the highest building I could reach. Stairways are easily barricaded, and even if that fails, it forces a nice bottleneck where you're only dealing with a couple at a time. Liz has already determined that she'll be okay at first. She's got history as a long-distance runner. Yeah. And we recently agreed on a spot she'd fortify until I could come and get her. She insisted I get people less prepared first, my kid being the big one, before coming for her. Because she's awesome like that. That is what you want in a zombie apocalypse survival partner. Right there. (laughs) Can't wait to hear what's next. Geekly yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Yes, I love that plan. And Liz seems pretty awesome too. In terms of general preparation, I think it was podcaster and author Mer Lafferty who explained her habit of wearing tennis shoes most of the time as, yes, it's very unlikely I'll be suddenly transported to a dangerous alien world in a different dimension, but on the off chance that I am, I want to be ready to run. And you cannot argue with that logic. That is is airtight. And, of course, before Max Brooks wrote World War Z, his first foray into the zombie world was the Zombie Survival Guide. Which we both read. (laughs) Um, For a very long time, I had a not particularly complete but adequate bug-out bag all four years of college. There was some kind of seminar at some point that was about zombie survival. And it yeah, was, I can't remember if it was a freshman, like one of those mini seminars like or your, an your, honors class. I can't remember where what the concept was and then what they did with it. But yeah, but it was about like preparing like an emergency plan and talking mm-hmm. about how important it was to be prepared. But the context was zombie For zombies, apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. This was also the same period in my life when I was watching the reality TV show The Colony. Um, right. Which was oh, just such a, such a good show. I'm pretty sure the first time that I saw it, it was on like a marathon. So at like 9.30, I started watching. I watched it until like 1.30 in the morning. (laughs) And you were all caught up. It was the best. Oh, that was was such a good show. Again, just a lot of conversation about emergency preparation Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And uh, I, you know, if nothing else, thinking about the dead and the restless dead sort of Mm -hmm. prepares your own mortality a little bit which i honestly think is a super healthy instinct yes, there you go more people should do it back to the feedback dr Ange wrote in again to say let me tell you about a tiny little subgenre that could have been squeezed into this episode the idea that portions of a body can remain alive to get revenge 
Or better yet, if transplanted, can cause the new body to do that. Well, that's some good body horror stuff. Mm -hmm. He says, think about the movies. Mad Love. Serial killer's hands transplanted onto a concert pianist. Body parts. Serial killer's limbs transplanted onto multiple people. The hand, with Michael Caine's disembodied hand attacking people. The beast with five fingers. Another hand out to attack people. Or is it? He says, definitely seek out Mad Love. The others, eh, not so much. I could swear there's a movie ten plus years ago that sort of that that did that with eyes, like an mm. eye transplant, and then you saw what the killer saw, or you saw people as potential victims. I don't remember what the plot was. And Interesting. Then, and then, of course, there was the romantic comedy version. You have Duchovny and Driver in Return to Me, where the late wife's heart is transplanted into another woman, and love happens let me just say i always thought that was a horror movie so like <laughs> you know in a sense it was bah, bah, bah. finally darren and ruth sutherland sent in their continued support for this series thank you guys we appreciate that now here in terms of mummies in particular we were gonna they got mum- sort of the short shrift they did again we were running out of time. <laughs> we were tr- we were trying to be time conscious, and and this little catch up and follow up bit especially goes out to devoted listener Luke Giaconetti, certified fan of mummies. So I did not mention the Marvel Comics character of Nakantu, the Living Mummy, which might be because he appeared in one of my least favorite quarter bin books ever, Nick. <sighs> Nick Fury's Howling Commandos, Episode 9. But the idea is, born over 3,000 years ago, the son of the chieftain of the now-extinct Swarli tribe. This is Nakantu. He grows into a strong, wise young man, proving himself a worthy successor to take over the tribe. But not long after, the Egyptians abducted the entire tribe, despite Nakantu's efforts. In Egypt, they were enslaved, serving the pharaoh and his corrupt priest Nephris. After completing a monument to Aramset, Nakantu led his people to slay the pharaoh. Nephrius, however, ambushed the chieftain, paralyzing him with a special liquid. Nakantu is then mummified alive and entombed for millennia. Now, similar to the Marvel Comics character of Morbius, the living living vampire, vampire, this was created in that odd era where they were loosening up the comics code, but not to the fullness of anything goes. So zombies, mummies, vampires, vampires these were kind of off, so you have to make them just different enough. So he's not a mummy, he's the living mummy. Or Morbius is not a vampire. He's a science vampire, a living vampire. So they can get around some of those, some of those uh, remaining. Exactly, exactly. Also wanted to uh, mention that during October, I do some horror-themed comics reading. And so shortly after recording that episode, I read the 1993 Dark Horse Comics adaptation of the classic Universal movie. The Mummy. I haven't seen the movie, so I can't say how faithful the adaptation was, 
but it was a pretty interesting and eerie read. Excellent. Well, I think that puts us at about halfway through the episode, so let's take a break here. And in the meantime, enjoy the aforementioned All the Way to the Blood Bank by Blaster the Rocket Boy. There was so much blood. I've never seen so much blood. She's a vampire! He's a vampire! She's a vampire! She's a vampire! Got a blood that's going in my refrigerator. I'm the undead and I'm not getting any better. And make no mistake, it's not a wooden stake at all. And this, cause I put the school in the house. with the second half of our feedback episode. So hopefully everyone took that opportunity to go take a bio break, get a power bar, (laughs) stretch their legs, because we definitely did. And I know what you're thinking. This is too long an episode. It's your own fault! This is on you guys. (laughs) Stop sending such interesting follow-up. Okay, don't. Keep sending it. Keep sending it. In episode 23... The fifth part of the mini-series, we covered the fairy realm. And before that one, I posted that the mini-sode's original recording length was about 50 minutes long, you know, before the edits. And I asked what Clinton Robison would say about that. You remember, he's not a fan of 30-minute mini-sodes. But Tom Panneris came to our defense and responded by saying... Stella from Batgirl the Oracle would say it's five times too short. At which Stella replied very simply to Tom, You're rude, and I don't like you. I love our friends. (laughs) And Clinton did actually respond to that, saying that for his show, Coffee and Comics, that's on the long side. But I guess for Dorkness Delight, that does count as many. And for Stella, I defer to Tom's answer on this one and suggest that some coffee would help speed her up. Paul Hicks was quite upset in this episode. Christmas elves got very short shrift on this one. No Keebler, no North Pole. Those troublemakers? Bah. Humbug. We also heard from Gene Hendricks from Two True Freaks, co-host of Anime Freaks. From that perspective... And as someone familiar with the Norse fairies, he felt obliged to give us some fairy-related anime recommendations. First, there's Myriad Colors Phantom World, which gives an alternate take on spirits and such like. Then there's Konohana Kitan, which is based around a hotel run by Fox Spirits, which is a waypoint between our world and the world of fairy. Fox Spirits are a big part of Japanese mythology. Gotcha. Okay. And a lot of times they do have that sort of like host aspect that a lot of those okay. stories either involve welcoming them in and mm-hmm. being a good host to fox spirits or fox spirits being sort of like a, Interesting. a friendly sort of like gatekeeper kind it, of character. 
There are a few other anime that are fairy adjacent in that they have fae in them but aren't focused on them specifically, but those two are very good takes and enjoyable to watch. I'm definitely going to check out Konohana. Like, that sounds, that sounds really interesting. And hotel anime is kind of its own genre, which I have not uh, partaken of enough mm. because I, I always enjoy it. There's fun hijinks. See, I was thinking how cool it is that all these horror and spiritual topics have been animated. Then I recognized, oh, everything has been animated. At Hotels, some point. basketball, golf, whatever it is, there are dozens of anime about it. Yes. <laughs> Dave McIlvaney followed up on the Mr. Mixius Pitalik comments. Thanks for clearing up that character's status. I had not made the obvious connection to Rumpelstiltskin. Join the club, Dave. But when M mentioned it, it was so obvious. I think that's just a, a thing with we comic book people <laughs> that you just know Mixie is a thing, but you don't ever think about it. True. Until... Fifth dimensional imp. Boom. That's all you need to know. You're off and running. Yeah, you don't. It's like, yeah, it's just Mixie. Uh, doesn't that need some explanation? I don't see why. Dave also wanted to follow up on werewolves. I should mention that one of your fellow podcasters, Aaron Henley, host of Tangents Abound, has written the first of what I believe is to be a series of novels involving werewolves, oh. as well as some other beings you've been discussing. So this is one of our listeners... Who's actually written <laughs> the trunk novel. Because my specialty is the unfinished novel. Aaron evidently has got one that's actually finished, so la-di-da. It is kind of shaming for all of us, I think, actually. It's a bar to aspire to. He is an inspiration in getting off your duff and writing the thing. There you go. Well, Aaron's book is Fangs of Vengeance and deals with, among other things, the pack and family nature of werewolves. And I did know that, but that was definitely an oversight. Thank you, Dave. Excellent. All these recommendations. We're all just going to be reading and watching all of these things for the next, like, two years. Perfect. Based on the preview post for this, Michael Bradley said he was hoping you all had the courage to spend at least half of the episode on the greatest werewolf movie of all time, and then sent us a gif from Teen Wolf. I think, again, we've truly and wholly failed. Tim Price wrote in after this episode, but his email covered more than just this episode. Ghoulish greetings to Alan and M. I started listening to Dorkness Delight this summer and have enjoyed it a lot. It's a podcast niche that I didn't expect to have filled, but you both do a wonderful job. Thank you for this intellectual, spiritual exploration. Well, thanks, Tim. He says, I'm neither as intellectual nor spiritual as I should be. Join the club. <laughs> so my thoughts on these are pretty brief, but they have been great listening fun. One, thank you for sharing how to pronounce Golem. In the 70s, I read a collection of ghost scary comics and then had one story about this legend, including the man-slash-death language element. So that was a trip down memory lane. Two, I'm not good with favorites, but a memorable take on vampires, was in Matt Wagner's Grendel monthly comic in the 80s with a kabuki dancer named Tujiro. 
He had many familiar vampiric powers, but his preferred transformation was into something like a Persian cat. Hmm. He disappeared at the end of the initial storyline, flash forward 20 issues, when the comic has moved 500 years into the future. Okay. With a different person as Grendel fighting the tyranny of the Catholic Church with the stunning revelation that Pope Innocent XLII is Tujiro himself. Ba-ba-bum! This really struck home with your discussion on the anti-Italian, anti-Catholic slant of the vampiric legend and their weaknesses. Fascinating. And three, by strange coincidence... The day before listening to The Fairy Realm, I had just read the Section Zero graphic novel by Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet, and that story was a Selkie! Now, even reading it, the term Selkie tickled my brain as though familiar, but from where, I can't say. And then to have you both discuss them the very next day, thank you, serendipity. That's more than enough of your time for today. Again, many thanks for a fine show, and I look forward to more. Happy Halloween, Tim. If there was a single, not really oversight, but thing that I wish we could have spent more time on, it was probably Water Spirits. I love mm, the Kelpie, right. and I love the Selkie, and I really wanted to get into those, because there's a lot of really good, like, mermaid-esque stories that can be right. told with Selkies and Sirens, and I think they're all fascinating, and so I was I was really sad we couldn't talk more about them. But don't worry, the little bit that you did talk about Water Spirits was frightening enough for me. I still remember that some of those grisly details already, Okay. I traumatized you enough, that's fair. No more, no more! It was at about this point that we heard from Ben Avery, who said he was enjoying the mini-episodes, love the content, and love that there is more content. And I'm not saying for sure that Ben was trolling us. But while we were extremely proud of doing seven episodes over the course of like three and a half that's weeks... That's pretty impressive. Which is pretty good. Ben did seven comic book time machines in a week... So, I guess he just had to be a show-off to steal our thunder. <sighs> I mean, they were good episodes, yes, but still. Again, what is it with all of our friends just raising the bar? <laughs> <laughs> we have talented, productive friends, which is good. They just make you look bad sometimes. Exactly. Now, Karen from Between the Pages, that's a blog where food and pop culture meet, Ooh. suggested a theme song for that episode. Ghost by Mercy Me. That's not a bad choice. Not bad. In terms of follow-ups, you had a book that you had found. This is one of several great things about working in a library is that by coincidence, things will drift across your desk. That You are... mean in addition to being able to say, shh, okay. all day. Yes. Um, having all these books just randomly passing through mm. your hands constantly yep. that yep. some of them are going to be perfectly tailored to your interests. So there was a book called Reading in the Dark, Horror in Children's Literature and Culture, which is edited by Jessica R. McCourt. That's uh, just a, it's a collection of academic essays about children's lit, and it's really cool. Uh, it's talking about the importance of, I mentioned this earlier, the sociological concept of deviance, which doesn't have a moral value. Mm -hmm. It's just something right. that is outside of the norm or outside of the expected, and how important it is to have that element in children's literature because it helps children to become 
more well-rounded and more prepared for, for when uh, they the run unexpected. into things that are outside the norm. Right? Uh, there's a lot of really good stuff about sympathy for monsters and and mm-hmm. what that means and the the meanings ascribed to the creatures of the dark over time. There's some stuff about classic fairy tales and grims, you know, pre-grim oral traditions, and then mm. some stuff about modern stories. There was a big essay about Goosebumps and what an influential (laughs) and important series that was for people of my age. Mm -hmm. Really good, well-researched, interesting topic. And it has one of my favorite covers of all time. Just like Google the cover for Reading in the Dark. (laughs) Uh, It's great. And I kind of want three (laughs) by two foot. You want to hang the book up on your wall. Yeah, I I, I legit (laughs) want a poster of that image. Now we've talked about Tolkien... A whole lot. A whole lot, but I don't think we mentioned Tom Bombadil and Goldberry. Now, Bombadil is probably something greater than a fairy. There are hints towards that. But Tolkien was was always pretty vague about that. But Goldberry is pretty close to fairy. Yeah, just straight up and down. Something in there. She was called a river spirit or spirit of the river. But again, it's uncertain exactly what was meant by that. I believe that's that's Bombadil's description of her, and his descriptions were not always meant to be you know, precise and easily understood. Yeah. So he was speaking poetically, but what still, what exactly is a spirit of the river? Not to go on and on about Tolkien even more, but one of the great things that he did in his world building and then in the theology of his world building mm-hmm. I really appreciate good world building. I really, really appreciate when your theology is Mm -hmm. still solid and consistent Mm -hmm. that he did leave room for what I would qualify as things. Mm. That in his his worldview, he had the angelic beings Mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the divine creator. But then in between that sort of level of being and humans hobbits, elves, etc. Were things. There were still some other things that just showed up randomly. For example, Bombadil and Goldberry, but also things like the mouth of Sauron. What exactly right. is that? Mm-hmm. Is that a human? Is that a spirit? Uh, you know, and, and he never felt required to really nail the specificity of that right. down, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. We also didn't mention... The fairy renaissance of the early 1900s. We talked a lot about the angel renaissance in the 1990s and and, and will again. But we didn't mention that 100, 110, 120 years ago, fairies were kind of a thing. And Arthur Conan Doyle was involved in attempting to see and take pictures of and and he was a a part of that. The fairy renaissance is interesting because it... It's just such an odd thing for a kind of really odd time in human history that we Mm -hmm. we had just gone past the spiritualist movement Mm. and where where technology was sort of becoming more normalized and sort of trusted in society. And Houdini, good friend of Mm -hmm. Mr. Doyle, was going around being like, this is complete garbage and means nothing. And it's almost like in reaction to the spiritualists kind of getting taken down a peg or two, the fairy people kind of took <laughs> their moment their, their, to be their, like, their we, can, we can slip into we, this we... gap before the scientific method kind of completely mm-hmm. takes over. We can, have, we can have our moment in the twilight. Interesting. 
And then we moved on to Lilith, Nephilim, and other goofy things in the Old Testament for our penultimate minisode. And Ed Moore, who was a huge fan of independent comics, loved our mention of Dark Ark, which he said was an excellent book. And as a point of information, he said that issue 11 came out in November of 2018, and that the first 10 have been collected into two trade paperbacks. All right, then. To the library catalog. <laughs> oh, yeah. And if those trades are in any university library anywhere in the state of Ohio, you can get them. Heck yes. Nice to have connections. Dave McElvaney wrote in to say, if you're looking for comic book depictions of some weird sort of biblical mythology, check out DC's Secret Origins number 10 from January 1987, which gives four different origins for the Phantom Stranger. I've heard of this mm-hmm, issue. I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've had it recommended to me before, yep. and it's... Uh, There's a copy down in the basement. Oh! One of those tells the story of him as a semi-fallen angel who didn't take a side in the rebellion and thus is condemned to wander the earth for eternity. Another of those origins is essentially the story of the wandering Jew. If you're looking for weird, even loopy Christian mythology, you must read some medieval Catholic hagiography with tales of bilocation, levitation, physical battles with the devil, etc. I was steeped in these tales during my Catholic grammar school days, and I still love them to this day although I've never been entirely credulous about them. We are big fans of the Catholic imagination and recognize that stories such as those are missing from the histories over on our side of the Christian family tree. This is why I spend holidays with the other side of the family. (laughs) Back to the Phantom Stranger. About 25 years after the book that Dave mentioned, In the New 52 era of DC Comics, the Phantom Stranger was Judas. Oh, yeah! So they have dug into religious Christian imagery for his story and backstory on multiple occasions and come up with multiple versions. I mean, that is the nice thing about a character as weird as Phantom Stranger. Mm -hmm. All is canon, all is allowed. Clinton Robison said he was with us on hashtag keep Christianity weird. And Dr. Ange said, most of what I know about Lilith comes from popular culture, which makes sense given the lack of biblical references. Almost all depict her as having extremely long hair and trying to choke people with it like a noose. Am I confusing my Liliths? Another great show, Ange. I think like the Phantom Stranger, (laughs) Lilith has a... A long and varied history? Can can we say that? I think so. (laughs) And again, we heard from Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks. Greetings, Middletons. Oh, this is just such a continuous joy to work through, and I'm going to be sorry to see it end. Don't worry, though. I won't give you too much grief for it when it does. Well, not to Adam. It's always fun to give the professor some grief. Ain't that the truth? Oh, the fun of biblical weirdness. You're not wrong about Nephilim being the new fantasy hotness. I first remember them being named in the video game Diablo 3. In that, the player characters were revealed to be Nephilim, most likely as a way to allow them to defeat the evil entities at their most powerful when all of the human protagonists from the previous games were corrupted 
by the very evil they battled and turned up as enemies in the subsequent games. No, really, it was kind of awesome. That does sound pretty great, I'm going to be honest. I do so long when these little obscure ideas get widespread across fiction. And I'm crossing my fingers that Dybbuk's yes. are next on the list. Okay, side sidebar. I did not know that a Dybbuk was a discrete entity because the only time that we had heard of them was in that short story that we mentioned. Where it was pretty clearly a genie-ish. More more Right. But Dybbuk's are ghosts, but also genies. Nice. Thanks. Those lines are continually blurred. (laughs) Yes. That was mentioned... In a previous email, probably from Nathaniel, about some of these definitions becoming much more specificized (laughs) and things being categorized in certain categories, reminds me of a bit of Batman history Mm -hmm. that really throws modern people off. But in the, I want to say first or second year of Batman, we're in the late 30s we're talking about. He goes up against a werewolf character who can change into a bat and there can change into mist. There's this confluence, confusion of acts like a vampire, but he calls it a werewolf or is it vice versa? I actually can't can't remember. And we look back now and say, oh, that silly writer. Didn't know the difference between a werewolf and a vampire. Those distinctions had not yet been formalized. Yeah, and codified. The, yeah, the, the way story that they are he now. was telling was period appropriate. Mm-hmm. And again, I think this goes back to Gary Gygax. When you have to <laughs> exactly stat a creature, you have to make specific rules. But the problem is sometimes people like to take those stats mm. and sort of retroactively apply them to mythology. Right. back in the day. That's a good point. We mentioned this a couple of times of talking about Japanese Mm. fairies or ghosts or vampires. A cool thing about Japanese like mythology and folklore and Mm -hmm. monsters is that a lot of them are all three. That they are blood-sucking, undead, that also exist in like some sort of parallel, Mm non-earthly plane. Mm -hmm. And so especially when you look at Japanese mythology, trying to separate out is this thing a fairy or is this an undead? Or is it a ghost? D, all of the above. D, all of the above. Like, it, the, the question just doesn't even make sense. You can't even parse it. And some some cool th- Banshees, for example, to use a Western example. Is it a fairy? Is it a ghost? Is it an undead? Yes. <laughs> Back to Nathaniel. Lilith, I'm a bit more familiar with overall, at least as far as her many various interpretations. Nice work on the professor keeping the explanation for the split between her and Adam PG. The first demonic Lilith I remember encountering was the version that showed up in the Ghost Rider comics of the 90s. The mother of all demons with her entourage of of demonic children. The one I like the best, though, is the one that appears in the world-building material of the vampire The Masquerade, RPG. When Cain was banished to the land of Nod for slaying Abel, he encounters Lilith. She teaches Cain of his powers now that he no longer dwells in God's light, and Cain becomes the first vampire, siring the original heads of the 13 clans which make up vampire society. Can't remember if you two ever mentioned a familiarity with White Wolf's World of Darkness role-playing games, but I would recommend checking out some of that 
for its lore, if nothing else. I had a bunch of friends in college who almost exclusively Mm -hmm. played White Wolf. One of them is like a current ongoing Vampire the Masquerade larper. Mm. I knew about Kane as the first vampire, but totally forgot to mention him. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that Lilith was Was involved involved with that. Nathaniel is totally right. Like the White Wolf world building, like the World of Darkness stuff is so good. The game itself, I find a little cheesy. Mm, It's just, it's just not really my bag. But I definitely have read some of the source books because they're just really good fantasy world-building material. And Nathaniel says, there's so many other monsters in the Bible you didn't get to. I know, it was already 45 minutes long. The book of Revelation is, of course, rife with them. We have to stop. Congratulations. We appreciate you saying the book of Revelation. Good work. (laughs) Though... Some of those are arguably more metaphorical than literal because it's a vision and all that. But come on. Seven-headed dragon? The serpent? The beast? M was right. The Bible is so frickin' metal. Looking forward to the next, though sadly last, entry in this miniseries. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. And next we heard from Vera Wild, and we get... Our sacred origin of the episode. Dearest Middletons, I'm not entirely sure that this counts as proper feedback for your Dorkness to Nightmare episode about Lilith and Nephilim, but it's still that episode that sparked this train of thought, and I'm about to derail all over the place. Ever so briefly in that episode, it was touched on some of the nuances and possible different interpretations of these beings, depending on the translation of the Bible. I don't know if I'd ever mentioned it before, but such concerns are probably the most concrete and practical reason for my reluctance to over-engage in formalized faith. I've said before that I'm spiritually inclined, but deeply non-committal, and part of my comfort with being such is my discomfort about the level of conviction I see in the faithful. To put it in the bluntest terms I can, if we take it as read that the Bible is the intended word of God, and that the original transcribers didn't screw up those words or mess with them, then most people today are reading an update of a translation from multiple languages that may have already been done from a translation of an earlier work. Even setting aside biblical literalism for a moment, I just can't get comfortable putting that much certainty in a spiritual game of telephone. It's probably why I get inherently anxious when belief is acted upon with the certainty of fact instead of the guidance of faith. That's a good point. And the way I think of my Christianity is that the biggest leap of faith, the biggest single leap of faith that I have to take is that the Council of Nicaea got it right. And that's a pretty big leap. In determining which books should be in the Bible. Uh, Then at this point, I always poke at my Protestant and evangelical friends to say, you know, this Bible you rely on, this was completely chosen by Catholic brothers and sisters. You know that, right? That also. We're not Mormons. It didn't descend magically into the hands Mm -hmm. of an American in 1800. There's a a whole history Mm -hmm. of translation and commentary that goes on. I'm going to be honest. I think Judaism has a lot of things over Christianity, like a lot of them, Mm -hmm. but the biggest one is their comfort with commentary. 
Right. A lot of Christians, especially Protestants, really don't like thinking about the fact that human beings with human brains and preconceptions and Mm -hmm. bigotries and assumptions were at any point involved in getting their scripture to them. Mm -hmm. And it's an unfortunate and naive Mm -hmm. understanding of your spiritual texts. And man, is it something that they, we really need to work on. Mm -hmm. The feedback continues. Now, you may or may not have wondered why I'm writing this email from this account when I've already sent a more straightforward one from my other one. Vera here referring to her alter ego, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, at least as some of your listeners are aware, my own sense of gender is a fluid thing, and as I've come to a better understanding of it, I've been able to identify some lines of thought with being more at home in certain aspects of myself. It's my masculine side that tends to geek out hardcore, hence the separate feedback, but I found my feminine side to be the significantly more spiritual part of me. It's a sense I've had for a little while, but I've come to what might be a firmer understanding of that in the last year or so. I've been following... Vera's YouTube channel Mm -hmm. for several months now, and the updates have gotten more and more sporadic, but also significantly more personal, and it's clear that she's been doing some pretty serious soul-searching for the last year or so. That's great. As she explains, you see, my mother is a witch. No, not a pagan, not a Wiccan, not a New Age Earth goddess, just a witch. A strong-willed woman with a sense of connection, intuition, and small spiritual gifts that appear to be naturally part of her makeup. It runs in the family, or rather, in a fairly specific aspect of the family. My mother is the first daughter, of the first daughter, of the first daughter, and so on, for at least five generations back. And that line specifically is where this has manifested, and, more to the point, never been a source of shame or personal denial, as far as I can tell. My grandmother knew she was a witch, she preferred kitchen witch, specifically, and I'm told her mother did as well. Again, this isn't about some spells or rituals being passed down through the family. All these women were churchgoers, my mother a bit more sporadically than the others, but still. And it was just a sense that they themselves had, and those around them were able to sense and see. Of course, as an only child, and being born male, this means that the line ends with my mother. My daughter, wild as she is, does not appear to have inherited this. So it was some months ago at dinner that my mother said something that kind of clicked a few things into place for me in an odd way. She said, I think cosmically, you were meant to be a girl. She'd been telling me for all my life that she firmly believes that the reason she had a son was because she wished it and focused her power so strongly on having a boy. But as she's come to better understand the wibbly-wobbly, nice, nature (laughs) of my own relationship with gender, she thought that if the universe had its way, I'd have been another first daughter of a first daughter. As someone who experiences gender variance and fluctuation, but no severe dysphoria, it brings me a certain amount of peace to think that maybe the universe had one plan, my mother had another, and ultimately, the difference was split. My mother got her son that she got to raise and watch him become a person that did not see their time living in a conventionally masculine life to be wasted or wrong, even as I've moved away from that with time. Plus, I kind of like the idea that my mother basically looked the spiritual cosmic (laughs) intentions of the universe dead in the eye and said, oh no you don't, and then produced a boy by sheer force of will. Like I said, she's a witch. Sorry for this derailed train of thought only tangentially connecting to the episode, but I've greatly enjoyed sharing my spiritual notions with both of you in the past, 
and I wished very much to share this. Have a lovely All Hallows' Eve and a wonderful All Saints' Day with love, Fear Wild. Gender Fluid Burlesque Queen, published author, nice, and untamed spirit. And the book that tells much more of this story is Vera's book, Skirting Gender. Which I will always pat you on the back for helping name. Like, (laughs) yes, yes, this is our teeny tiny claim to fame. We didn't come up with the name, but we loved it so much when it was used in an email. That it got got bumped up the list. (laughs) list, So, yes. yes. (laughs) Thank you for writing in, Vera. Yes. Can I just say that this is the best thing about our podcast? Is our listeners are so diverse and all of them love writing in and telling their stories. Absolutely. Like, it's the literal greatest. I know we're here almost two hours into our feedback episode, which could be kind of self-congratulatory, but you guys are amazing. All of you, like, super cool listeners. Y'all are the ones who make this show so great, and you're the reason why we keep coming back and doing it. Because we love having a place where we can talk about some of our weird zany stuff and not be judged or penalized. And we like being able to have other people come up and be like, hey, here was my experience as a Catholic and here's my experience with witchcraft. And it's like, cool. We're cool. Witchcrafting concept is always a cool thing for me. Mm -hmm. I I think it's really interesting. Not for me, but interesting. Mm -hmm. Conceptually, it's such a cool thing because... As Vera points out, it's not really tied to any sort of religious tradition. There mm-hmm. are certainly people who would self-identify as witches because or in part because they are part of the Wiccan faith. Right. But that's not the only element. Yeah, and they, they are distinct mm-hmm. things. And that I just, I just, I love the word, that it's, it's a yeah. craft. It mm. gets back to that root that I was talking about in the fairy elements about Mm, mm -hmm. some sort of existence that is in some way in tune with reality in a different way than other people are in tune Mm -hmm. with like Mm -hmm. it's just such a cool concept and i think that people who are like practitioners are super super cool people i've actually had a lot more problems with religious identifying pagans or wiccans either being really judgmental or really snooty Mm. i've yet to meet a mean witch (laughs) robert bell agreed with our basic premise of that episode yeah the bible is weird (laughs) it's a trip man it's a trip patrick delmore asked what about madeline lengel her books are fairly mainstream, and she wrote a great one, Many Waters, about the Nephilim and the time before the flood. Okay, hang on. How did I, I not know that that's what Many Waters was about? The heck? For that bit of information, Patrick Delmore gets a shout out oh, as host of Next Generation's First Generation, a podcast about Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> And Gene Hendricks, again, talked about, guess what, anime. And he said, it's not unicorn versus cockatrice, but My Little Pony did give us Pegasus and cockatrice. And he included a picture of that meeting. Thank you, Gene. (laughs) 
as you said, one of the awesome things about your job mm-hmm. is access to books that cover some of this weirdness. Yeah. I don't I don't know if this specific book was at your library or in the seminary library that's across, across the, the street. street. <laughs> but for that episode, we did have a great little resource book called Lucifer, Leviathan, Lilith, and Other Mysterious Creatures of the Bible by Joel R. Souza. I think we both skimmed through that to get some of our information for that episode. Again, by the time we were recording that episode, we were like really down to crunch time. I think I got that book two days in advance. Yep. And they were both... You skimmed it for a day. I skimmed it for a day. They were both work days. So it was a quick research sesh, and I was very glad that I could find a 78-page book yes. that contained all the information we needed. <laughs> and after that episode, I kept that book for a week or so and read it. And it's a nice, slim book, like you said, and has the earmarks of being a graduate thesis originally that's sort of been rewritten for the more general audience. There was a couple of instances of Greek or Hebrew words, but they're always explained and they made sense in the context. So overall, it is readily accessible by any interested, moderately educated layperson. And I did want to give a shout out to Mr. Souza because he's not just a university professor, but also a pastor. And not that every pastor has to be a religion professor or vice versa. But I do like it when those two skill sets intersect. The senior pastor at our church taught business law for five or six years. So I am more than a little biased about the professor slash theologian slash pastor combo. Well, here's the thing. University research education and dedication as a pastor or priest of a religious order were synonyms for like centuries and we would say for a reason Mm -hmm. you don't have to be a professor you don't have to have a phd but you do have to be a good critical thinker Mm -hmm. and a solid researcher because as has been pointed out several times up till now biblical interpretation is an arduous, mm-hmm. complicated, translingual process. And not everybody has to be able to read Latin, Greek, and Biblical Hebrew, but it helps. It helps to have someone in the staff, in the denomination, in the group that can. Or at least have good research skills yes. so mm-hmm. that you can judge a good translation. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was in that episode that M talked about the myths that we believe and couldn't remember where you first heard that concept? Spoilers, it may have been me. Oh! I didn't want to mention it in the episode, but I think what you're remembering may have been a number of conversations that we have had over the years. It's certainly possible. (laughs) Or, what was your side blog? Wandering liturgist? Itinerant iconoclast. That one that I became a fan of when I was... 17 years old and then sent a link to you at the age of like 19 or 20 and you had to tell me oh Oh, that's by the way that's that's me that's my brain i was shattered i was shattered sir there was a point when i tried to keep my professional and my comic book and my religious all as separate silos but we've smushed them together the last few years so 
What can I say? Good. Sorry. But I believe in talking about Genesis 1 and 2, Age of the Earth and all of that. Okay, look, we've discussed this before. My Christian school, high school experience and education, there were adequate sections of that education, which I do not regret. But the genuine shame that I was subjected to by my teachers for questioning the age of the earth? Yeah. Unacceptable. I believe this was one of the conversations that you had with me, which I appreciate, after one of those hard days, probably. Oh, it was not a good day. I st- I can remember that day and sitting in the car talking to you, like, in I, the parking lot at school. I think it was something to the effect of, do I have to believe this? To be a Christian. It was basically sort of that level of discussion. And I think the point that I made is that the Genesis 1 and 2 stories are indeed the Hebrew God's version of a creation myth, a type of story that many cultures have, just about every religion has. What makes these ones in particular stand out is that they happen to be the creation story, the creation myth told by and about the actual creator and his creation. But it does fit into that type of literature. It's just the one from our the, the, the truest our perspective, yes. <sighs> Good on you. You know, we, we take moments where you can pat yourself on the back. That was like... As a parent, you don't always know when a crisis point is happening, but I thought maybe that was... And finally, we wrapped this all up in episode 25 with the not-so-mini-sode focused on angels. Now, I tweeted that it was a little touch-and-go that we would be able to get this episode out by Halloween, which was, that was obviously our goal, and we did meet that. And our friend Laurel from the Feathers and Foes podcast said that, you know, as long as we get it out by Thanksgiving, that was okay with them. And I guess we should say that if this feedback episode gets out on Black Friday, yes. then we're doing okay. Then we, then we have managed to meet all, all of, of our, our goals. Deadlines. Which, let's, let's get super real, guys. Whew. <laughs> we had some near, near misses in our release schedule. After the preview post went up, Dave McElvaney, basically having read all of our notes, just went, ooh, Angels, archangels, principalities, powers, virtues, dominions, thrones, cherubim, and seraphim. Okay, so I missed thrones, which is not a type of furniture. It is a type of being. Again, just conceptualize that. Mm -hmm. And then after you expressed your dismay for how he'd managed to perfectly nail our list in, like, chronological sequence, he pointed out, here's the thing. I'm a Catholic nerd. I list and classify (laughs) It's what we do. <laughs> An old friend of mine from high school. Speaking of high school? Yes, exactly. Speaking of high school, uh, John commented that I freaking love biblically accurate representations of angels. They are so good. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, they yes, are. Yes, they are. John is also the person who lent me his copy of the complete H.P. Lovecraft, so <laughs> I was not surprised that he was going to be, be interested yeah. in this particular episode. <laughs> And then after the episode, Dave McIlvaney came back around and said, as you noted, 
Angels are spiritual beings whose nature is beyond our comprehension. I found M's idea that there are maybe five fallen angels intriguing and hopeful, as is the idea that the heavenly host is singular and that angels are not individual, if I understood that correctly. As correctly as our language has words for. (laughs) But I do have some trouble with that idea that angels don't have free will without that. How could Lucifer have fallen? How could he have separated himself from the host? These are questions beyond my understanding. And And ours. ours. (laughs) And of course, I'm entirely aware that my thinking could be wrong. I believe the most important idea in seeking knowledge or wisdom of any sort is, I could be wrong. Amen. Yes. Yes, brother. In Catholic grammar school, I was taught the concept of mystery. Mm -hmm. In the sense of something that is beyond the ability of the human mind to comprehend on its own. And as I get older part of me becomes a bit more comfortable with the idea that some things are mysteries, but that speculation about such things is okay. One of my own speculations is that no matter how many fallen angels there are, I hope there is some possibility of redemption for them. If one can fall from grace, I believe a gracious God might offer redemption for all of creation, including those in hell. Whether they accept that grace, of course, would also be a matter of free will, though. Thanks for all of Dorkness to Nightmare. It's been quite an interesting October. Well, thank you, Dave, for all of your regular and well-thought-out feedback on this and every episode. We can find that incredibly encouraging, as we've mentioned before. Now, when I found the verse in Isaiah, this was very early in my life as a Christian, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts above ours. I found that so liberating. It just gave me an understanding of that value of mystery. And as I've aged, like Dave, I think I've come to appreciate the existence and importance of mystery even more. Our next feedback is from Gene Hendricks. With With more anime recommendations! If you want an interesting take on angels, fallen angels, and devils, then I recommend the anime High School DxD. Yes, there is fan service. Okay, a lot of fan service. But the world that's set up in the story is really interesting for those that are theological nerds. Following up his recommendation, he added, I figured anything that has Azazel as a major character might be of interest to you both. Although, full disclosure, Michelle watched the show with me, so while it is very fan service heavy it was not so over the top that i had to turn it off at any point so <laughs> proceed if, with caution if it pe- but if it passes wife inspection that does mean something yes <laughs> and nathaniel wayne is back with his email for this episode which he titled insert some sort of angel pun here okay i mean i'm not saying he's slacking off here at the end but <laughs> okay it's been a slog. It's been a slog. I, I cut everyone so much slack. Blessed Middletons. Aww. While it saddens me to see this miniseries come to a close, it's been absolutely wonderful every step of the way. And what a terrific way to close out getting into the nature of angels and the fact that, biblically speaking, they're pretty terrifying and made all the better by ending with your most personal spiritual thoughts in the series. That was my idea to lead up to and end with demons and Satan. You said, well, we can get to that if we put it under the category of angels. They're all scary enough. 
Yes. So that was a that was a very good compromise on the two of us to build up to that ending. Yeah, I think your original plan was Nephilim and angels as one, and mm-hmm. then demons and Satan as the other. Right. And I said, well, I think we need to shift angels mm-hmm. to the other yep. episode because I can't go full crazy <laughs> before our last episode. Like I can't come back from that. <laughs> that has to that has to be the closer. The thing that M mentioned about Lucifer not understanding loneliness before his uprising, adding to his tragedy, reminded me of a bit from the film Dogma. Now, we went back and forth with you that you hadn't seen it yet. <laughs> I need to. I believe to. his quote was, what sort of madness is this? Yeah, something like, I, I know, I know, it has Alan Rickman in it. It's literally been on my two-watch list for three and a half years. That's always controversial to say anything about a Kevin Smith film. But to me, dogma is more interesting than it is good. Fair enough. Nathaniel says, there was an exchange that was cut from the final film. And I think I talk about it without spoiling anything. In the film proper, there's a character who taunts a human by saying, have you ever been to hell? I think not. And there's an ominousness to that line. But that's really all we get. What was cut was a deeper explanation of what hell actually meant before humans started being sent there. We're told that originally hell was simply the absence of God. And if you've ever been in his presence, you'd know that that was punishment enough. It goes a little further by saying that hell was only made into a place of active torment upon the arrival of humans, who thanks to free will and their ability to choose or to not believe in God in the first place, do not suffer nearly as much from that isolation and therefore need different types of punishments to be devised. But that original idea of the pain of being disconnected from God actually runs through the film for a number of characters, with one saying flat out, I felt the absence of the divine presence and it's pained me. Seriously, Em, watch the movie. I will. (laughs) We didn't get too much into hell just because that is its own very complex can of worms that's going to include purgatory. You could not limit that discussion to a minisode. No. There are so many pop culture and comic and movie and book versions of all types of afterlife. Yeah. we, we That was beyond us. We just, we just weren't going to have room to talk about it. But that concept of hell is a very biblical one it's specifically mm-hmm. a very old testament one mm-hmm. which i am actually quite down with the um, the concept of sheol pardon my pronunciation but it literally means the grave but specifically like the empty mm-hmm. grave emptiness loneliness barrenness implying all of those things and separation and cold just all those things that we could think about sort of all are wrapped up in that concept in that word yes So I appreciate in Kevin Smith's movie stating that if it exists, it was a later addition because Mm -hmm. the separation and the emptiness and the loneliness is enough. Mm -hmm. Very cool concept. And amazingly, Nathaniel says, I actually have some praise for the professor as well on this one. I'm probably going to steal your analogy of the totality of existence being a five-dimensional symphony that only God is capable of hearing properly. Okay. Should we break it to Nathaniel? That that was you? That was me. That was me. Sorry. It's certainly more succinct than the convoluted analogies I've tried to use in the past to convey a similar concept. I've mentioned probably several times now in several feedbacks 
that while I have enough belief to consider myself to be spiritual, the core tenet of my own angle on this is that I cannot possibly understand how all of this works and that there is no mortal human who can either. Humans are literally incapable of comprehending all elements of even the known physical universe to say nothing of what else may exist on other planes, be they parallel, demonic, or divine. As for myself, I find a peace in that. It's not my place to put the universe in order, because if there's an order to be had, it's far beyond my or anyone else's capabilities. We all find our spiritual center in different ways. For some, it's pursuing whatever knowledge can be understood. For some, it's taking comfort in a specific, established interpretation. For me, it's taking joy in the idea that the universe is too big for anybody to wrap their head around. Again, I'm pretty much on board for this. While I'm not firm enough in any one idea to say something like, it's all in God's hands, I still find that incomprehensibility to be beautiful, peaceful, and calming in and of itself. Happy All Saints Day, Nathaniel Wayne. Greatly appreciated, as always. One of these days, we're going to have to do an actual episode about Gnosticism instead of just dunking on it every, every section, time, like every yeah. possible time that we can. But we've said it at least once, maybe more often. We are always down with agnosticism mm-hmm. over Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. Like if the sum totality of your religious beliefs are, I don't know, we are totally down <laughs> with you. We totally get that. If your sum totality of beliefs is that mortal existence is pain and suffering and worth only destruction, we're actually going to have a significantly bigger problem with that. (laughs) One of the nice things about being eclectic and ecumenical as Christians is that we get to take note of both Halloween and Reformation Day on October 31st, (laughs) and then we're fully comfortable following those up with All Saints Day, as Nathaniel said, and then All Souls Day. We get to have it all. We do. We get to enjoy the secular Halloween Eve, and then Reformation Day, etc., etc. (laughs) I did want to give a shout out to Karen, again from Between the Pages, who said that she never wanted the series to end. Some of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. Aww. Ain't that sweet? That's so nice. Thank you. Mentioning Halloween, (laughs) Reformation Day... And the Lutheran college that you work for now? Yeah. Do you want to mention your dress-up adventures? So, last year, I dressed up as Martin Luther. Offhandedly, when my director mentioned, oh, by the way, if you want to dress up for Halloween, you're totally allowed, I immediately shot my hand up in the air and said, I don't know if anyone else is going to be dressing up literally at all, but I will be here on Reformation Day dressed as Martin Luther. And... Everyone from the seminary across the street, their eyes just went super wide, and they all started grinning, and I was like, oh, well. Did they start chanting, one of us, one One of of us, one of us. us. I came up with the joke last year, and this year actually took the two and a half hours needed to hand letter in gothic-esque calligraphy script. I've got 95 problems, and the Catholic Church's sale of indulgences is all of them. I was very proud of this. I got many pictures taken, and I ended up on the official Twitter and Facebook of the my, seminary for the seminary and my employer. So that was uh, that was something. Because not everybody puts their graduation robe to use 
as well and as often as you have. Exactly. <laughs> now, before I went into work, I was just walking around in the robe. The picture that you mentioned, at least one of them, was you sitting, I guess, in the seminary area among their collection of Martin Luther statues and posters. Yeah. They have a cardboard cutout of Martin Luther that was right behind me. And so it's like, okay, well, we're going to get all the Martins just gathered all together into the corner. And we're going to have our own little council. And I think that the, at least one of the posts I saw was, we had a special guest today on campus. It was a really fun time, and I appreciated how much everybody everybody loved my costume. That was Professor and Pastor Martin Luther. Uh, yeah? See? Ah. See? When you combine those two things, you get trouble. I think that's the lesson. Troublemakers. So to wrap up, we have a few, blessedly few, remaining recommendations <laughs> from this series. And as we said, angels were all over pop culture from the mid-80s onward, and Christian pop culture has never seen a bandwagon that they couldn't jump on themselves. And to be fair, they were somewhat prepared for this one. So I want to mention a couple of these uh, in terms of novels, probably the the earliest, 1985, 86, something like that, is This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. And if you're part of the evangelical Christian subculture in the 80s and 90s, you know him and you know that book. All about warfare between angels and demons. And I will say that his angels were scary. Not just in size and in temperament as as well. So I liked that. Uh, It was probably the biggest selling novel in Christian fiction until Left Behind. A decade or so later, Peretti produced one sequel, which wasn't bad either, And I actually have a lot of respect for him for not cashing in and giving us 27, 36, 144, (sighs) just thinking of good biblical numbers, of angel novels. Two, and then he went on to do other stuff. Yeah. I I do kind of respect that. There was another one called Angel Walk, which is not a bad novel about angels and how they can move from one time to another, just like us walking from one room to another. There was some interesting world building. And a pretty good surprise ending, actually, as the author, who I believe was named Roger Elwood, wrote more and more in this series, they got less and less good. Yeah. And that is one of the drawbacks of long series. And again, thumbs up to Frank Peretti. For not falling into that. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I will just say, briefly, since it was the 90s and angels were everywhere, one of my early novel ideas... Didn't get very far. Got got less far than the vampire novel. Was an angel story. An angel idea. Because, of course course. it was. Now, before we wrap up, I did want to say that we do have other feedback in the hopper from, you know, previous episodes, not from the Halloween series. And we will get that next time that we have a regular full episode. But it might be a while before that episode comes up. This is our side project, and I will admit it's the one that I have become increasingly invested in. Yeah, understood. But it is a erratic release schedule, always has been. The promo and... calls it an occasional cast. Yeah, it, it always will be. And I just think that the next bunch of times that we get together over the next few months to record, that's probably going to be for our mainstream 
pop culture and comics show, Short Box Showcase. So it's possible that something or two kind of small may appear here on the podcast feed in the next few months, but maybe not. It may be well into 2019 before this podcast gets something. Always remember, Darkness to Light has three different parts to it. The other two will still be active as always. My Tumblr is always updating. I've got it all queued up and there's always content Mm -hmm. to be found there. Funny jokes and pictures and memes and cool videos. And I I swear, I swear I'm going to get the Spotify hooked up and going in early 2019. And Um, I do the blog and the Twitter. And they're not as active or as good or as cool as the Tumblr. I try. (laughs) Mine is just mostly memes. Like, it's not that hard. Like, it's not a super high bar. (laughs) So, Dorkness to Light content will be out there, but just not so much here on the podcast feed. But let me just say this about the podcast feed. Over my Christmas break from the university, I may well mess around with the feed and make some changes, some like behind the scenes type of stuff. And sometimes when you do that, it re-releases episodes, some or all. So that could happen, and I apologize in advance for possibly filling up your phone with stuff. Possibly inundating you. (laughs) No fresh recorded edited audio content because this has taken a serious toll on us. We officially decided, like, yes, we were going to do this series in late August, mm-hmm. so that theoretically we would have all of September to prep, um, except that I have only been working at my new job for about four months at that point, so I was still kind of getting a little bit settled, mm-hmm. and your semester had it literally just started. just started, and then two weeks after we decided, oh, we're going to do this, I was like, hey, how about I buy a house and completely move household in three and a half weeks? Between the time of this recording and the release, you will be about $100,000 in debt. Congratulations! Uh, You'll be closing on your first house. I'll finally be joining my all of my friends in multi-thousand multi yes. dollar debt. You're awesome! <sighs> and as you found out, there's a lot of time. And paperwork, and emails, and meetings involved with searching for, finding, putting an offer on, and purchasing a house. Oh god, I've got like three more meetings this week. Including HR and my bank. I'm going to have to entirely move house in the next eh, 15 days before my (laughs) lease runs out. (laughs) Now, it's going to be a lot of trips from the apartment to the house. I I don't know if you've... Looked it up specifically. It's about two miles. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not far, but just... I mean, it'll be one tank of gas, but it'll just be spread out over about two weeks. <laughs> well, the thing is, I'm finally moving down from the top floor of a building, which I could not be more excited yes. about. But it means I need to bring every single worldly oh, possession that down I have from the... down four flights of stairs. But then into a ranch. So that's helpful. Well, the basement. Ugh. You may have to put some things. Anyway, anyway we're getting too far ahead of ourselves. In the basement. Nothing is going in the basement. <laughs> nothing is going in the attic. I'm not. Ne- I'm not going to look at them until like 2020. I like. like the I'm way not you even going to think about stairs. It's going to be a marathon. It's been a marathon up until now, 
and uh, just want to rest. <laughs> I just want to rest. <laughs> November was supposed to be my relaxing, recovering mm, month. Right. And then like September 18th, my realtor was like, hey, there's a place that's available. We can get you into it in 36 days. What? Huh? <gasps> Exciting. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> and exhausting. Yes, on all three counts. But winter break is coming up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have like three beautiful weeks. Isn't working at a university awesome? Oh, it's the greatest gig in the world. <laughs> oh, it's so, it's magnificent. It's incredible. It's legendary. By like January, maybe my sleep schedule will have recovered. <laughs> so sometime in 2019, we will be back. We have a long list of episode ideas. We have some guests that we've talked about showing up on the podcast at some point. There is lots of Dorkness content to come. We literally threw out two podcast ideas while recording this episode. (laughs) So there will definitely be plenty of content once we're back from sabbatical. Exactly. There you go. Obviously, as you can tell from this episode... We love interacting with you, receiving feedback from listeners, and also just to know that you're out there listening. We appreciate that. All are welcome. And there's always room for more. Yes. May the Force be with you. And also with you. While you're waiting for the next podcast episode, check out our websites. DarknessToLight.blogspot.com contains reviews essays, and other similar ramblings. And dorkdistolight.tumblr.com, which contains some of that material, as well as top tens, cool photographs, memes, and religious puns. We also run a general interest comic book podcast network, Relatively Geeky. That content can be found at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Let us know what you think of this topic, this episode, or this podcast in general feel free to send your thoughts to us at darknesstolight at gmail.com. We would also appreciate any ratings or reviews left for the podcast in the iTunes store to help like-minded people find us. Our intro, outro, and promo music is by Anderson Kale. Check them out at andersonkale.com or search iTunes to purchase their music. Thanks for listening.